Penny University, a podcast with value. Penny University presents 2019, Our Investigation, Our Truth. What happened to the Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshots? A mother determined and almost broken, fulfilling a promise to her son lost. A friend lost in the contradictions between the crew he knows and the crew that was distorted. What happened in Yarnell, Arizona at the end of June 2013? Episode 10. Thank you. My name is Deborah Finkston. Uh, my son Andrew Ashcraft was the lead sawyer, a lead sawyer on the Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshot Crew. I'm Doug Harwood. I'm a firefighter in Prescott and I was on Granite Mountain for a few years and had friends on that crew. We're going to be, um, you know, kind of bringing everything to closure. We're, this episode is just going to be kind of our final thoughts, our final um, what we want to get off the chest. Something Doug and I have said um, for, from the very beginning, and Doug backed me up yeah, on this, absolutely. right? Um, we wanted to make sure that we said everything we wanted to say, that we wanted to not have anything left. We didn't want to say, oh, we should have said this and we should have wanted to do that. So this is kind of our um, catch-all episode, I guess. Yeah. We've had all this time to think about things and, and not really an opportunity to say it, so it's nice that we've had this this chance with the podcast. Thank you, Deborah. Yeah, thank you, Doug. Um, truly, we've just sat in the living room and worried about you know, noisy wiggly chairs and Dottie the Basset Hound making noise and the ice machine going off in the refrigerator. But um, we just wanted to make sure that we got all of the information out for people to listen to and hear and for it to be off our shoulders. So one of the things we want to bring up too is how at the time the city of Prescott, how they treated the Granite Mountain crew. Um, Currently, we have a good city government that really cares about the memory of Granite Mountain. But at the time, what was the city's temperament towards Granite Mountain? If we're talking about the time um, before they before the tragedy, it seemed like they were just trying to squeeze every penny out of whatever Granite Mountain was making. They were trying to get it as cheaply as possible. You know, they were trying to cut cut positions so that they could have they could pay less to the crew members and. Uh, Hotshot crew has to have a certain set amount of positions that are full time. The city was trying to get around that somehow. There was they they were just trying to get every bit of money they could. So basically, the bean counters and whatever. But they also, I remember Andrew sharing stories about how the city of Prescott treated them, and they kind of wore it like a badge of, you know, that yeah we're treated this way, but we're gonna rise above it. Yeah, I think there's definitely a difference between um, some of the, uh, at least on the fire department, some of the firefighters that weren't or hadn't done wildland stuff before, hadn't been on that crew, um, just didn't didn't understand how much work those guys did or what they did in their job really at all. So um, they, de- they definitely didn't get the respect they deserved from a lot of people. Right. Um, we now are going to have a beautiful memorial um, from loving people down on the town square and people submitted these beautiful ideas for them to pick through and I sarcastically wanted to submit the idea of the crew because the memorial is going to be right across the street from the city 
hall, and I thought it would be really good for the crew to kind of be making gestures towards the city. <laughs> um, Andrew had a tendency to shoot the moon to everybody. Anybody that knew Andrew at one point in their time had seen his naked rear end at something, and I always thought, well, maybe Andrew should kind of shoot the city hall, the final moon. Um, and it was afterwards that the city realized what a great group of guys these were, and not just kind of disrespected hard grunts, kind of. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that came out with the families, um, how the families were treated afterwards. Um, the city wasn't very positive, and that, again, is something for another podcast or another time and for other people, but the families were put through the ringer by the city, not by the citizens of the city, not by the people, but by the city government. Um, we were treated pretty rough, I will, yeah. I will say. And you'd hear their speeches saying, you know, you're, this is always your family's home, and then the, their actions were different. Right, their actions behind, they would, as long, if there was a camera in front of them, they loved you. If the camera wasn't there, um, they were trying to um, kick you in the gut. <laughs> um, a lot of firefighters were coming out, and I think it was kind of hard because I, I believe that Granite Mountain was almost taken over by the fire union um, at that time, and not the um, wildland. I mean, they were taken over by the fire union. Right, but that's really all they had. That's I mean, right. The, the wildland community was there, but it wasn't a part of their community. Mm -hmm. And the union was there, and they did. They just kind of took it over. And not that I don't think anybody had a cruel thought in mind, but it just became a really crazy time. Yeah. Um, and like I said, we're not going to go into it, but please note that if there's anything that you experienced or anything that you sent or anything that you did to help Granite Mountain and the families, we truly appreciate it, but that doesn't mean we know it happened. <laughs> I still, this many years later, will have people walk up and say, we did this, or we did a fundraiser here, or we did this ceremony, and we knew nothing about it. The families were really kind of um, cloistered and, and, and protected, but there was a lot of things happening. And so I thank everybody for all of their kindness that they did. Um, one of the things, too, that when we're out doing things, Doug, you've said when you're out on fires or when you're out doing something or when you're out seeing other people working, what has this tragedy done for you? Um, for a while there, it really hit, it hit me hard. I realized it didn't matter where I was, if I was on a, it was a fire assignment or uh, if I was just at a, at a burger joint watching somebody. If I saw somebody doing work and they weren't doing it well, it just irritated me, me beyond belief because I just, I'm, you know, these great guys did awesome work and did every, you know, always, always kicking ass, always doing the best they could. And to see other people just not putting it in like they did and just continuing on with their lives just really, it, it really crushed me deep down. And, I, and it took a long time to, it's still, it's still irritating to me to see that, but it, um, you know, I can kind of put it away. Step away. Yeah. You know, there have been many times I have said, why this crew? You know, why a crew that had youth pastors and good family men and... Um, 
weren't, you know, drinkers or partiers or drugs or, you know what I mean? Right. Um, all you hear about is that it was a, a crew of second chances, but no, it wasn't. I mean, it was a crew of second chances for a couple of the guys that they brought under their wings, but this was a, a crew of, of hardworking um, men that cared about their community, cared about their country, cared about their families, and cared about doing a good job. Yeah, I think everybody that ever worked on that crew probably had the opportunity of a second chance just in making their life better. Yeah. Just in knowing these guys, knowing yourself better, knowing how hard you'd have to work in a day, pushing yourself beyond limits that you thought you could. Yeah, there was no slacker line no. with this crew. Eric, was, you, Eric you didn't gone. lie, Jesse didn't allow it. Yeah. I mean, quickly gone. Yeah. And so I often think that too. And maybe when I walk through the gates of heaven and I say, okay, why? I'll understand it. Well, I, one of the frustrations um, I carried after this was the ramifications of a few state laws. The families wanted to know the truth, the alumni wanted to know the truth. The country wanted to know the truth. The Forest Service did not want the truth revealed. They, they didn't want the truth known. They still don't want it. I believe the state forestry didn't want the truth out there. And what backed them up, even though 12 families came together and wanted to go to court, we wanted to expose through um, independent investigations, we can show gross negligence on this Yarnell Hill fire. But the state of Arizona has a law that our, an old governor, old Governor Jan Brewer, signed into law that if you are a state employee, you cannot take the state to court unless you can prove it was premeditated murder. Okay? So if you are, let's say, an electrician that is a state employee at, and you're an electrician and your boss tells you that you have to change that light, you have to change that light fixture on a metal ladder in a puddle of water and you electrocute and you die, you can't, you, there's no ramifications, there's no way you could take the state to court because your boss didn't want you dead. He didn't premeditate that. And so it fell under that law because Granite Mountain was working on state land. Since they were hired by the state to fight this fire, they became state employees. And so even though the families, our attorneys, independent investigations, Doug and I have told you the gross negligence that happened on that fire, we can never take it to court um, and we can never truly ha force those that know the truth to speak because of that law. And that law still? That law still exists. Wow. So don't become a state employee in Arizona and die. Because <laughs> there's nothing. There's Good nothing that will happen, okay? Um, one of the things that the families did ask for and stand strong for um, was an eight-hour session with people from that fire, that the 12 families wanted to have representatives um, and meet with these people, with the type two crew, the type three crew, um, the, I, the, the, I, the IC yeah. command, 
um, in a room and we wanted to ask them questions. And it was approved, the governor at the time, Governor Ducey said, yep, attorneys, which took forever, um, said it, that was part of the deal. Um, the state forester who had changed since then uh, approved it. Um, and so we had an eight hour session. So at this eight hour session, um, the families requested that the type two IC commanders be there. Um, we also had a few others that we requested. Families were allowed to bring some people in. Chief Willis was there. We invited you, Doug. You were able to go in. We asked that Holly Neal, who is helping John McLean and who discovered the audios be there, but she was denied. She was not allowed to be in there. Um, the safety officers were given a grace. They, uh, even though we wanted them there. They were given a grace, so we weren't able to ask any questions for the safety officers. Because they didn't show up on time or no the fire? Or? The, oh, yeah, well, you know, when, when one stays in Phoenix and the other only shows up 25 minutes, that is a legit point. Yeah. Thanks, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we go to the eight-hour session, and part of the frustration with the eight-hour session is we were required to submit any question we asked to the state forester for the people to look over a week before the eight-hour session so that they could be prepared to answer. And so at the time, I thought, this is so ridiculous. Let's just, why don't we just forget it then? But it was also interesting to be there. Um, I do want to say at least there were some that showed up. The safety backed out, but... The others showed up, and so good for you. You were confronting some families that were pretty sad. Um, but the couple of things that came out of that eight-hour session for me is, number one, I didn't realize how overwhelmed I would be. I went in there I with prepared. I had notes. I had questions. I had things I wanted to ask. And then when I sat there, I was just overwhelmed. So I, I really didn't achieve what I wanted to do. And I've beat myself up for that since. But I remember at one point finally saying, this is, this is getting silly. This is, we're just asking questions and we're in this queue of rambling. And I said, this is what I believe happened. I believe that there was a um, backburn put, you know, put on the ground. I believe that's what killed the guys. And I just gave them the whole thing that we've talked about in these podcasts and they sat there quiet. A couple of them started crying. And the others, they just sat there quiet. And then I will never forget a comment by that type two IC commander. He looked at me and he said, Deborah, those boys are in heaven. Would you want us in jail? And honestly, I was dumbfounded by that comment. Part of me said, yes, yes, sir. If you did something so wrong and you knew it was wrong and 19 men died, yes, sir, I believe you should be sitting in jail. But what I'm asking is for you to be honest, for us to learn what happened so that this doesn't happen again. And so I had all that going through my mind, so I sat there like a bump on a log. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to get what you want to say out, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's one of those situations where you're driving home and it's like, oh, I should have said this. Oh, I should have said that. 
So in reality, I kind of believe that that eight hours, this, I wish I could have it back. I wish I could have that eight hours now, knowing what I know now, not being in shock, not going through all of the hours in attorney's offices, not having to be kind to people. You know, I just, I wish I would have had it back. Or if you were an investigator who had the opportunity to really investigate this and ask these questions that you wanted to ask, that's probably what needs to happen. Instead of family members having to think about these questions and do this themselves. Yes. It should be, it should be already taken care of. Well, you know, and I walk around town and occasionally I'll see them and because they also live in the area, some of them. And I think I want to walk up and say, are you done deceiving yourself? (laughs) And then, then I can, then I feel conviction. And I think, you know, um, it's a tragic thing. And when, when you're part of tragedy, things happen. And I understand how it, it works in your mind. Um, but I do wish that someone would finally step up. It did seem like there were people there that were trying to step up for their parts in it. You know, the meteorologist seemed like he was yes. having a hard time. The dispatchers seemed like he, he, he knew that there were problems, that there were issues that they needed to work on. Yes. There were, there were things that people were able to talk about. Um, the aviation guys, um, they seemed really genuine and um, kind of devastated too, you know? Right. But yet there were a couple pretty arrogant people sitting in there also. It's kind of frustrating, especially when you see them around town. Um, but I think, Doug, you brought it up. We need to insist on independent investigations. Um, whether it be the um, OSHA of the state that it happens in, that they go out and do it. Was ADOSH, was their report 100%? Maybe not, but it was a thousand percent better than the serious accident investigation report. Yeah. You know, so maybe it's the occupational health and safety that does the investigations, not the forest service. I would love to see the NTSB have a division that handles it um, because they handle things correctly, right? They don't, they're not under a time constraint. They build the um, site until they figure out what's going on. They interview, 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 but investigations have to change, hands down. If, we, if they want to learn everything that they can about these, if they actually do want to learn about it, then they're going to have to change it. Because what they're doing now is not, is not an investigation. It's not. You're right. And it's the same old rules that they've said. All, that they're saying all, they're just repeating the same, same stuff that's already out there. No, no changes, nothing new. Right. And, you know, it makes you look at things differently for sure. There are tons of podcasts out there. You have options. Penny University is truly a podcast with value, and we strive to share great true stories. Some are plain fun, some might bring a tear to your eye, and maybe even make you a little angry. Listen to them all. Please listen, like, and share. Head over to our Facebook page, see who we are. And thanks for listening. You are listening to Penny University, a podcast with value. We hope you find this series captivating. If you would like to share your two cents, please contact either Deborah or Doug at pennyuniversity at protonmail.com. Thank you, and now back to our podcast. We've had some uh, 
emails from uh, wildland firefighters who've been listening to the podcast. One of them, uh, we have a little quote here. It says, I like that Doug also brought up the fuel SIGs. Surely there could be a better SIG design that could withstand the heat. I know others have addressed the possibility of making a better fire shelter. I also like your comments on panic override buttons on the radio. And that's just, you know, wildland firefighters want to see change too. And the SIG bottles is a basic good change, and that hasn't come out. And, and But you were the only one that I've ever heard bring it up. Uh, yeah, I haven't heard of any changes. Uh, as far as I know, they're still used, yeah. but I haven't been on fires in a few years, so I wouldn't know. But it wasn't in either report. Right. So, you know, it makes you wonder. But I agree, you know, panic buttons, fire shelters, radio communications. There needs to be a good investigation so that we can have good change, healthy um, change, safe changes. Um, one of the things that they have done is a staff ride. And Doug, you and I have walked on it. Again, they invited families to go on one of the um, pre-staff rides. And we were allowed to invite people. So, of course, Doug comes with us wherever we go. And so we were able to walk this staff ride. So staff ride is like a um, taking the path of the, the guys that day in a, tra- in a tragic situation, knowing where it ends from the start. Right, and... They're not supposed to give information. It's kind of like guiding the, the ride so that they can try their best to make decisions as the crew would have made decisions. Or to be put in the situation where you feel like them. Yes. Of, yeah. Yes. Um, and they, the military does this. They do this at Gettysburg. They, you know, Annapolis goes up all the time. And so they have the staff ride. And there's other wildland fire staff rides. Yeah. And Granite Mountain has done them. Yeah. And it's supposed to put you in that situation. We, you know, we're, we, in wildland fire, you talk about situational awareness. This is a way to gain situational awareness without ever being in that actual situation. If and it's done correctly. If it's done correctly. And learn, you know, you learn from it. Right. Um, and, a, you know, a couple of things with the staff ride is when they took us out on it, it's so hard to understand the fuels that they were in because it was moonscaped. So I always thought it would be good if, um, because there are some locations between Prescott and Yarnell that still have those fuels as thick. You know, walk them through those fuels so that they can truly understand, because it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be tough for you get a van full of people to walk through what they had to walk through. Yeah, it'd be a good... Uh, you know, well, that was the point. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You know, um, and also to give them a hand, you know, this visceral feeling, a folder full of the certificates and the education that this crew had. You know, something that Daryl Willis brought up, what, 102 years of experience. But to give it to each member of the staff ride in a visceral fashion, here's a folder of who this crew was. Right, because they say they're, you know, a qualified hotshot crew and that they have all those, but they don't get a, a like you said, a feeling of it. And mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to give the, the legitimate feeling of, of what they had or the qualifications or how good of a crew this was, but I don't think anybody can get, I can't figure out a way that they could get yeah, that how across. how do you do that? I don't know. Um, and another thing I don't, and Doug, you and I have talked about, 
On this staff ride is the Type 2 um, IC commander and the field ops. They're, they're there kind of giving their case. That's, that's really, I, I, don't see the, I don't see how that's appropriate. It doesn't seem right once you know about the fire. <laughs> you know, once you know what we know, it, it, it doesn't feel like a, feels like they're just trying to put it in their, in their scenario and however they want to rewrite it. Right. And, and we've had, we've known people, we have talked to people that have done the staff ride with them and how they almost defend their decisions. Well, that's not what a staff ride is meant to do. A staff ride is meant to hear the facts, but of course, again, you have to know the facts, but here are the facts, you decide. Well, how are you given the facts when you have the type two IC commander, the field ops, whoever, defending yeah, giving their reasoning for, yeah. That defeats the whole staff ride. Yep. And then we've been told that the Type 2 um, IC commander and the field ops, when they get, when you take the staff ride and you get to the fatality site, they play the audio um, recordings that were found of the crew and Eric, their communications. They don't talk about it. They play that just, they let Eric and the crew be their voice. And these um, IC2 group, they want the audios to stop. They don't want them being played anymore. Yeah, it's pretty interesting because we don't, we, we have those audios of the time when they said there's no audio or there's no communication with them. Now we can prove that. <clears throat> Now these guys want to have their the story the way they want it without those audios in there, maybe. Or they're afraid that someone's going to recognize the voices that are on those. Yeah, it's, it kind of defeats the whole purpose of a staff ride. So we're hoping that um, those wildland firefighters or those structure firefighters, anybody that's taken out on the staff ride, think about that. Take it with a grain of salt. Think about what we've just said. So years before the crew died, I uh, was working in wildland fire and I um, read the serious accident or the investigation reports for um, South Canyon, the Storm King fire. And um, I remember, like I've said before, you, you read that and you think, oh, these guys made these mistakes. But after knowing what those kind of reports actually do or what they don't do, um, this really makes me feel, feel, um, I feel terrible for the um, Prineville hotshots who have no, no way to, to know the truth, know what happened to their, to their crew members, if there was something different than what those investigations say. You know, it would be interesting to relook. You know, we've talked about it time and time again. What were the, you know, now you look at the other reports and you see like glaring deceptions or things that just don't sit right. Yeah, I, I, I start reading them and I can't even finish because they'll, it's just like they did in this report. They'll say something like, we can never know what the crew was thinking at this time. And in the very next paragraph, they say, they were probably thinking, they'll yes, just contradict they, their they assume, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> they contradict within paragraphs of each yeah. other. And just as we were talking, we look up on the internet and we're looking at the um, NWCG's report on wildland firefighter fatalities from 2007 to 2016. 
And there's this one little graph, and it talks about the Dude Fire, South Canyon. The Dude Fire, they lost six. The South Canyon, they lost 14. 30 Mile, four. Um, Esperanza, five. Yarnell, 19. And it seems four and under, they don't even care about. There's these poor threes and so forth. But one of the things that stands out to me is that they've drawn this deceptive little red dotted line, and it, they have it purposely bent down, like, like depths are going down, but they ignore <laughs> the points where they go up. It's, yeah, and it's also, this, this isn't just deaths, because they're, they're looking at only entrapments. Right. So wildland fires, there's deaths, vehicle deaths, there's hazard tree deaths. You know, there's all kinds of reasons, air operations, there's all kinds of reasons that don't have to do with entrapment that should be looked at also. Well, even in this report with the paragraph underneath it, it says, um, you know, that casualties, 2007, 15 casualties, 2008, 12 casualties, 2009, 10 casualties. 2011, 36 casualties. You know, um, we're, these aren't minor numbers. You know, 2015, two, uh, 27. There is not one season between 2007 and 2016 that the deaths are under 10, but they don't even look at them. It, it's, it's ridiculous. It, I often wonder, um, right after this happened, the Wildland Firefighting Foundation had a mother from, uh, that lost her son in Storm King. And this woman called me, genuine, sweet, kind, kind woman. And she said, I just want you to know, I know what you're going through. I'm, you're in my prayers. Be prepared when the medical examiner's report comes out. It's going to say that they are high in alcohol. But... That's not because they were drinking. It's because when a body burns, it produces alcohol. Um, she said, so be prepared for that. And it did happen. The crew was accused for a little while of drinking. Yeah, yeah Sunday Crazy. at 9 in the morning. Okay, whatever. Um, but now I wonder, what would happen if we talked to the families? What did they know? Did they get emails did, or phone calls? Did somebody come up and talk to them and say, hey, we know that this happened and didn't? Now, yes, there have been books. Um, John McLean has done books, but wouldn't it be nice if a true investigation happened and we know exactly what happened? Would other deaths be averted? Would um, somebody that's not, you know, writing the book for money, you know, wouldn't it be nice to get truth out there without it being forced. Right. And then, like you said, an investigator can ask the questions he needs to ask of everybody, he need, whoever he needs to, right? Right. Or hopefully that's what we hope for. Right. Whereas the author of a book can get denied. If he did, someone doesn't want to answer his questions, they don't have to. They don't have to. And, and basically they're writing a story. They're, I think they have good hearts. I think they want to write the truth, but they, you know, they're writing it for a profit. You know, their publishers are going to publish it for a profit. And so I, I really feel for the families of fires before us, all the way back to the Big Burn, Griffith, all, you know, Griffith Observatory, all of those fires, I feel for the families because truth didn't get out there either. I agree. Uh, one thing I wanted to say, Deborah, I just, um, I'm super thankful for uh, 
there's so many guys, so many alumni and people, guys and girls that were on that crew that weren't there that day, you know, throughout the years, all the, all the friendships I've had on that crew, all the times I was on that crew, just so many great people. And I, I feel so lucky because there were, there were people that just left the crew weeks before this happened. And other people that just weren't on that fire for some other reason. There's just, um, it just, I feel like it's such a gift that they're still with us. And, uh, I just wanted to make that, you know, put that out there. I'm, I'm really thankful for all those crew members that are, that are still here with us that, uh, you know, I understand. I'm, I'm so thankful for them. And, and sometimes my heart really breaks for them because their lives were kind of put on the back burner, you know, who they were. And as you said, you know, there was a crew member who left the crew two weeks. This was the first fire um, that the crew went out on um, when he left and, and the emotions that they have. And um, the crew alumni that trained these guys, um, there's wonderful stories. I love to sit and talk with them occasionally when I see them in town. Um, but also how how you, Doug, you don't wear the Granite Mountain hat. I don't see you in the shirt. And that's something you and I share. I don't like wearing the shirt. Um, how, you know, all of a sudden, all of that was stolen almost from them. You know, there were... I remember running into TJ, um, Julianne gave TJ Andrew's hat that had the Granite Mountain logo on it, and TJ wears it all the time, his brother, and he was out visiting, and we went to a local restaurant, and um, he said, Mom, this guy's giving me such looks, and I looked over at the guy, and it was an alumni, and I waved him, and he came over, and I said, this is Andrew's brother, TJ, and he was like, oh, hey, Andrew used to talk about you, but how hurtful it is for them to see it's just kind of mass produced. You know, it was just kind of taken. When they earned it, it meant something. And now everybody, you know, was doing it. And I, I so wish we could have gotten their stories to talk to them about the crew, but I want to be respectful of their feelings. But they are great guys and girls, you yeah. know. Um, and I feel for them. I feel for the pain and... Um, I think about them and I pray about them. And I want to share another short story. At Andrew's memorial, Andrew and I used to collect keys and ever since he was little because keys open up doors and, you know, to next adventures. And I shared that. And I remember sitting in the van. They put us in the van to take us to the cemetery. And a couple of Granite Mountain alumni came up to the door and they said, Deborah. And I said, yeah. And they put their hand and I opened my hand up and they dropped a key in the, in my hand and it was just beautiful it was just I still carry that key around it's with me every single day in my purse um, so I just want to say to them thank you it meant so much to me then it means so much to me now so yeah there's holes all over and yeah I mean these guys were such good people and I don't know what it, when it happened. I, I can only speak to the experiences I had, but the, the gym that I worked out, out at, these guys, a lot of these guys would come to that gym every day like I did. And the people there, 
I mean, these, these were such good guys. They were just like, they were always helping everybody out there, always working with, with everybody in the gym, always friends, friendly with everybody. And just to see the heartbreak and the loss on their friends' faces, just, you know, not, not firefighter friends, but friends in the community that they had. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it was all over town the same way. Oh, This yes. is just the spot that I knew of. It was just pain, pain for everybody. And I feel, I, I, it doesn't seem right because it seems like firefighters got looked after. You know, there was um, counseling or whatever, whatever you needed if you were a firefighter at that time. Family members also, I'm mm-hmm. sure, yes. got whatever they needed. Yes. But there were just so many friends in this town. They just had nothing as far as that goes, you know. Right. They just had their own um, memories of those friends and and the, the other friends that knew them, and that was that was that was it. Well, you know, as I've had repeated people come up to me and say, you know, a waitress at the local restaurant, how the crew used to go in and have breakfast, and they would start bussing tables if it was too busy, and she was swamped and she was sobbing. She said, "I will miss them so much." Um, a bank teller walked up to me and said, I will miss Andrew coming in, carrying his daughter, smiling, you know, cheerful. Grocery store managers who said that when the crew would show up to buy food, they would always go around the parking lot and gather carts for them, you know. And this community was devastated because they were such great guys. And I don't think I, don't think I can... Um, express that enough and when I run into the alumni it makes me think of those beautiful stories and I and I love when they share stories because it it brings them it fills that hole a little bit yeah and that's amazing it is nice to be able to talk to them to talk to about them with people who knew them yeah yeah you know, knew their sense of humor, knew their workouts, knew their nicknames, knew their um, their traits. Yeah. It's really nice. You know, I, I, I love when I listen to Ted Nugent <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, just hear music that they would talk about or, you know, just hear about the deck of cards workout and things like that. Yeah. It means something. And I guess, Doug, you got anything left? Well, I really, uh, I, I really want to thank you, Deborah, for uh, doing this for me. Well, you know, this podcast has been awesome in our, our time together. I like to think we would, we would be friends no matter what this. We would have met some other way and been friends no matter what. Um, but I, I really appreciate uh, all your company and all your help through this. Well, um, you know, I. I I tease Doug that I'm going to somehow mess up the editing of this final episode so he can come back next Sunday for dinner. You're um, fine with me. <laughs> uh, it has been, Doug has been a blessing from moment one at the middle school, and I'm going to cry so you guys are going to hear it. I'm a crier. God didn't give you tear ducts not to use them. And to go through taking me out to Yarnell and walking that trail with me and carrying my water and helping carry things and listening to my rants and just being so supportive in absolutely everything 
Um, it's been amazing. And I agree. I, I certainly hope that if we met outside of this tragedy, we would be friends. And um, I thank you for taking this journey. I don't know if it'll be over. Who knows? And But I think you've let me get everything off my chest that I've wanted to get off my chest about Granite Mountain and walked this horrific path with me. And I thank you for that. Well, thank you, and um, please continue to share the podcast with others so that the truth can get out there. Thank you for being part of our investigation, our truth. Be strong, wise, and safe. Thank you for listening to the final episode of Our Investigation, Our Truth. What happened to the Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshot Crew on June 30th, 2019 in Yarnell, Arizona. Doug and I would like to thank Penny University for hosting our series. If you would like to send Deborah or Doug a message, a comment, a question, you are welcome to at pennyuniversity at protonmail.com. Thank you for listening. And remember, be strong, wise and safe.